set free And Lord, give to us A passion for your word That we may grow and walk in all your ways On behalf of Calvary Chapel Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our senior pastor, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study, designed to help us grow in the Word. Standing and take your Bibles and turn once again this morning to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. We'll be finishing up the chapter this morning, Lord willing. So Ephesians chapter 1, I'll be reading verses 15 through 23. If you'll follow along now as I read Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. May the Lord bless this reading of his word and our time together in it. You may be seated. This is our third Sunday looking at Paul's thanksgiving and prayer for the Ephesians here in chapter 1. And you'll remember from our study that Paul began the letter, the letter with an exclamation of, of praise for, for, to God for all of the rich blessings that are ours in Jesus Christ in verses 3 to 14. And, and this in turn prompted Paul to pray for the Ephesians. After offering thanksgiving for their faith and love in verses 15 and 16, Paul began his prayer in verse 17, praying first and foremost, that they would have a deeper, ever-increasing knowledge of God himself through Jesus Christ. And then in verses 18 through the first part of verse 19, Paul shifted the focus of his prayer slightly, praying that the Ephesian saints would have the, the eyes of their hearts enlightened or illuminated, that they might know the blessings that are ours in Christ. And he had three things particular on his mind. He prayed that they might know the hope to which he has called us, that they might know the riches of the glorious inheritance that was theirs in Christ, that they might know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Paul didn't pray that God's power would be given to these believers, but rather that they would come to know the power that they already possessed in Christ and use it. And he wants believers not only to know this power, but to believe in it and to live in it, because it's only by the power of God that we're able to live the Christian life and be victorious over sin. And now as we pick up where we left off last week, Paul's prayer continues, but his requests do not. 
After mentioning God's power, Paul's mind just seems to take off and and soar at the thought of the the great power that is toward us who believe. And in the rest of verse 19 through verse 23, he is really uh, praising God for how the greatness of his power was demonstrated in Christ. It was demonstrated in Christ's resurrection, in Christ's exaltation, in Christ's supremacy, and in Christ's headship. And so after praying that the Ephesians would know what is the immeasurable greatness of God's power, Paul now begins to describe how it was demonstrated. First of all, it was demonstrated in Christ's resurrection. Looking at the last part of verse 19 and the first part of verse 20, where first of all, even if this power was beyond description, I mean, Paul points to the supreme demonstration of this power in the person of Christ. He says this power is according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And so Paul tells us that the power of God toward his people has been brought about in Christ. And he describes it as the working or the energy of his great might or the strength of God's might. His controlling power, Paul says, that he worked or exercised or exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Now we might think the creation of the universe or perhaps the exodus with all of the plagues and God's miraculous deliverance of his people through the dead, or the Red Sea were the greatest display of God's great power. But that's not so. There's a much greater picture of God's power in scriptures, and that is the resurrection and the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. That required the greatest outflow of divine energy. And you say, well, why, why, why was this? Well, one commentator said this, it seems that all the hosts of hell were masked to frustrate God's purposes by keeping Christ in the tomb or by preventing his ascension once he was raised. But God triumphed over every form of opposition. Christ's resurrection and glorification were a shattering defeat for Satan and his hosts and a glorious spectacle of victorious power. And I think he's absolutely right. I mean, Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness to avoid the cross. No doubt Satan was also present in the Garden of Gethsemane, tempting Jesus in the same way. And then after the cross, it it only seems plausible that Satan and, and all of his demonic hordes would do everything within their power to keep Christ in the tomb or to prevent the risen Christ from ascending to his throne. But in the greatest demonstration of the immeasurable greatness of his power, God raised Christ from the dead and brought him to his eternal glory in heaven. And as far as the scriptures are concerned, the resurrection of Christ was the first such event in human history. Now certainly there were others that had been raised from the dead. But as you know, they all died again. The resurrection of Jesus is significantly different for a couple of reasons. First, on the third day, God the Father raised him from the dead in his incorruptible, eternal, glorified body, never to die again. The Lord Jesus was the first to rise in the power of endless life. And secondly, and most importantly, the raising of Jesus is significantly different because only Jesus conquered sin, death, and hell, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. 
And the resurrection of Christ is at the very center of God's plan to redeem his people. And this is why it was the focus of apostolic preaching, and and rightly so, because the resurrection is a matter of supreme importance. Because it authenticated the Lord's ministry, it sealed his redemptive work, it marked the beginning of his glorification, and was a public declaration of the Father's acceptance of his sacrifice. So the resurrection of Christ represents really the pinnacle of God's work in salvation history. And so when Paul thinks of the immeasurable greatness of God's mighty power in Christ, he looks first at the resurrection. And according to Paul, God's power at work in believers is none other than his resurrection power, the same power that raised Christ from the dead. God's power for Christians is not, is not merely like the power that raised Jesus from the dead, but the, the very power that raised Jesus from the dead. The resurrection power is what raised us. This same resurrection power is what raised us from spiritual death to spiritual life in Christ. In Romans 6, verses 8 to 10, there Paul tells us, Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. I mean, Jesus died for sin and rose again by God's power. We likewise were dead in sin, but have now been spiritually resurrected in Christ. But that's not all. The resurrection power that raised us from spiritual death to spiritual life in Christ also enables us to walk in newness of life. In other words, it it, it enables us to live out the Christian life. There, back again in Romans chapter 6, verse 10, Paul says, For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. And then Paul explains, But the life he lives, he lives to God. So what we need to know, Paul is saying, is that by grace through faith, we are joined to Christ, not only in his death to sin, but also in his resurrection power for new life to God. And that's why Paul could write in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I mean, because Christ lives within us by the Holy Spirit, we as believers have the power necessary to believe and to live out the Christian life and, and to do good works. One commentator wrote that the Christian is a new man, recreated in Christ Jesus by the almighty power of the Holy Spirit. That same resurrection power continues to work in the believer's life towards the goal of Christ-like and God-honoring holiness. And as I said last week when we briefly touched on this, I mean, this is the Bible's answer to the questions, how am I as a child of God supposed to live out the Christian life in this world? You know, how are we with our, our selfish hearts and, and our sinful minds ever going to be able to follow Christ? How are we uh, going to overcome our three greatest adversaries, worldliness, the flesh, and the devil? I mean, the world constantly bombards us with its values, so how are we going to be victorious over this great enemy? And the flesh is constantly drawn to the things of the world, to fleshly, sinful appetites and desires. How can we overcome it? And then there's the devil. You know, what what a formidable enemy he is. I mean, no wonder Peter writes, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So how can we stand against the wiles of the devil? What is the power that we need? 
Well, the answer is right here. I mean, Paul tells us it is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. In the resurrection power of the Spirit, Christians can now prayerfully resist the enemy, resist temptation, put off the weights or the hindrances along with besetting sins, develop godly character, bear spiritual fruit, resist the pressure to compromise the truth, overcome indwelling sin, and persevere to the end. And as one man said, what tremendous encouragement this truth should give to believers. The power available to us in daily living is not to be conceived of as a tiny brook barely meeting the demands made on it. It is like a surging river driving before itself all the obstacles that it may encounter. And so think of it. There is power from beyond this world that is greater than sin, the same resurrection power by which Christ conquered death, the power of Almighty God that is now working in the lives of all of those who believe and seek it from God through Jesus Christ. As one man said, it is sin-vanquishing, Satan-defeating, death-conquering power. And it breathes hope and encouragement into our embattled lives. What God has done in his Son is the foundation and wellspring of all of our hopes. Somebody could say amen. You just need to lighten up a little bit this morning. You see, loved ones, the mightiest power ever unleashed on this earth was not the power of the atomic bombs dropped on Japan. It is not the power of an earthquake, volcano, tornado, hurricane, or flood. The mightiest power ever unleashed on this earth is the immeasurably great power of God that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And God's power at work in believers is none other than resurrection power, and for that you and I can always be thankful. Well, having raised Christ from the dead, Paul tells us God further demonstrated his power by the exaltation of Jesus to the right hand of the Father. Look at verse 20. Paul says, he, God, raised him from the dead, and then notice, Paul says, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. The two things, the the raising from the dead and the seating at God's right hand are really two stages of one epical event. Before the creation of the world, Christ shared in God the Father's heavenly glory, yet he voluntarily surrendered that position of great power and authority, taking on full humanity and humbling himself to a degree which we cannot begin to comprehend, becoming not only a man but a servant, and beyond that a sacrifice for sin. But this is not the end of the story. Because 40 days after being miraculously raised from the dead, the resurrected Messiah had completed his work of teaching and and training his disciples to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And then according to Acts 1-9, as the disciples looked on, Jesus was taken up into heaven. God exalted him to the highest place of honor in the universe, God's own right hand. As Paul said in Philippians 2.9, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. The Lord Jesus Christ returned to heaven with taking with him his full and complete human nature. 
And so now, glorified and immortal, uh, so that he might be the perfect mediator between God and man, Christ sits upon the throne. And what an incredible, uh, indescribable example of God's immeasurably great power. And I, I think that we as Christians, or I believe that we as Christians, a couple of things. First of all, I don't think we, we think about uh, Christ's exaltation much at all. And if we do, I think we, I believe we think too little of the exaltation of Christ. And Paul's reference to it here is is very significant for at least three reasons. First of all, Christ is seated. And this signifies lordship. The place where Jesus is sitting is not some ordinary chair, but rather a throne. The throne of God, which implies that he is currently reigning as the sovereign king of the universe. Whereas the resurrection proclaims that he lives forever, his exaltation proclaims that he reigns forever. In addition, his being seated also indicates the completion of his earthly mission. You know, Christians have long understood Christ being seated to signify his finished work as our Savior. I mean, Hebrews 1.3 says that after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And furthermore, sitting denotes the dignity that Christ shares with God. All others stand in God's presence or get on their face. But Jesus sits with him on the throne. And the fact that he is sitting shows that his position and reign are firmly established. Secondly, not only is Christ seated, but he is seated at God's right hand. Kings place someone at their right hand to grant honor and to show participation in their rule. And so to say that God has seated Christ at his right hand is not merely a a picturesque way of putting things. These are important words, words that deliberately echo Psalm 110 verse 1, which says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And this is a key text because it shows Jesus seated in heaven with God, sharing honor and glory with him, sharing in the the carrying out of salvation in the world. New Testament writers refer to, cite, or allude to Psalm 110, verse 1, some 30 different times. And the writer of Hebrews alludes to it when he says, To which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? The fact that the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, now sits at the right hand of God signifies that he is seated in the place of privilege, power, victory, distinction, delight, and dominion. I mean, this is the highest place that that heaven itself can provide. It's a place granted to our Lord Jesus Christ. And this position belongs to him and to him alone. And God's right hand refers to as as one man said, the power which the Father has bestowed on Christ, that he may administer in his name the government of heaven and earth. And thirdly, not only is Christ seated at God's right hand, he is seated at God's right hand in the heavenly places, which indicates that this phrase includes the dwelling place of God. 
And of course, this is where the Lord Jesus is seated today with his literal body of flesh and bones, a glorified body that's no longer capable of dying. In the heavenly places also signifies prominence. I mean, his throne is not merely an earthly throne. Even though there might be other kings, there there is no king like him because he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And that phrase in the heavenly places directs us to contemplate the heavenly glory uh, amidst which Jesus dwells. As one man said, the blessed immortality which he enjoys and the dominion to which he has been exalted. God has seated Christ at his right hand in the heavenly places. And so what what does the exaltation of Christ mean for us? And does it mean anything? What does it mean for us? Well, it means everything. Because it means everything is under the reign of the seated king. And Paul said in Colossians 1 that all things were created by him, through him, and for him. You know, he created all things. He also sustains all things. In Acts 17 we read, for in him, in Christ, we live and move and have our being. The author of Hebrews says that he upholds the universe by the word of his power and he upholds it all while seated upon the throne. And loved ones, if he's doing this, which he is, then we can certainly trust him with all of our problems, no matter how big or small they may be. And it's good for us to remind ourselves that our hope is not in a politician, a political party, or a political election. No, no. No, our hope is in King Jesus, the King of Kings who is seated at the right hand of God. Our hope is in our Lord Jesus Christ, who is not only alive forevermore, but is also reigning forevermore, seated upon his throne in heaven. And this power that exalted Christ in his resurrected body through the heavens and seated him in the place of honor in the heavenly places is meant to minister encouragement and comfort to our difficult and stressful lives. God demonstrated his power by raising Christ from the dead, by exalting Christ to his own right hand, and thirdly, by giving him supremacy over all the universe. God raised Christ and exalted him to his right hand, verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. You'll notice Paul uses four different words, rule, authority, power, and dominion, and he does this to encompass all spiritual powers. And although these words may indicate different ranks or power among the angels and demons, Paul is not primarily concerned here with angelic or demonic organization and power. Rather, Paul is emphasizing Christ's supremacy over all things. Paul is trying to convey the comprehensive nature of Jesus' supremacy. I mean, he's saying that whatever levels of spiritual power exist in the entire universe, Jesus reigns supreme over them all. I mean, our Lord is not only above, but far above everything and and everyone else. He is above Satan and above Satan's world system. He is above the holy angels and the fallen angels. He is above saved people and unsaved people. 
His throne, His power, His dominion, His authority is over all the powers in the universe, whether seen or unseen, whether spiritual or earthly. In fact, Jesus is exalted above every name that is named, Paul says. He is above all names, titles, ranks, levels, powers, and jurisdictions in the universe. You see, Paul wanted the Ephesians to know that Jesus, not Caesar, and not the authorities in Ephesus, but Jesus is the one who rules and reigns. And whatever powers and authorities have risen and may yet rise in this world, every one of them is under Christ's rule and dominion. Because the Father has given all authority in heaven and on earth to his Son. And then finally, in case there's any doubt, to make it clear that Jesus Christ is exalted to the place of absolute supreme power in the entire universe, Paul adds, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Paul wants us to know that Christ is not only given the position above all others, he is given that position permanently. There's no time limit. His authority is not just for a period of time. Christ will reign supreme forever and ever and ever, for all eternity. He reigns. Christ reigns. And there is no rule greater than Christ's. There is no authority that can thwart his purposes. There is no power that can withstand him or withstand his. There's, there's no dominion that can prevent his advance. And that is true in the present age, and it is also true in the age to come. There's not one square inch in the entire realm of our human existence which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not say, that's mine. And the Father has put all things under the feet, the dominion, the rule, and the power of his Son. And yet, writing to the church in Corinth, Paul says, For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. And then he goes on to say that when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. In other words, with his work of redemption completed, Jesus will reign forever but he will reign in his former full and glorious position within the Trinity, submitted to God the Father in the way eternally designed for him in full Trinitarian power and glory. All things are under Christ's rule, power, and dominion. But loved ones, the full reality of that dominion is not going to be seen or experienced until Christ returns. And that is why today as we look around at this fallen, Christ-rejecting, gospel-rejecting world, it doesn't seem that Jesus has all power, dominion, and rule. But he does. The Father has given it to him. And as Paul said to the Philippians, one day, one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And then all will see that God has, what God has revealed to us in his word, that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so although we don't yet see everything subject to him, the day is coming soon. 
As verse 22 says, and he, God, put all things under his feet, under Christ's feet. Here Paul is essentially quoting Psalm chapter 8, verse 6, which says, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. God put all things under Christ's feet. And this speaks of total universal sovereignty. Christ was given dominion over all power and authority. Hebrews 2.8 says God put everything in subjection under his feet. God put everything, absolutely everything, all things under Christ's feet with one exception, and that is God himself. And although Christ's ultimate victory is certain, the final subjugation of all things will not occur until Satan and death are permanently destroyed at the end of the millennium. And God is all. God is all and in all. However, you'll notice Paul says he put all things under his feet. Because Christ has been given supremacy over all the universe, which guarantees the certainty of future victory, Paul writes it as if it were already accomplished. It's that certain. God has put all things under Christ. So not only has he been exalted over all, but all have been placed in subjection to him. And this is a present reality and not merely a future hope. As one man said, the brow once crowned with thorns now wears the diadem of universal sovereignty. And that hand once nailed to the cross now holds in it the scepter of unlimited dominion. He who lay in the tomb has ascended to the throne of unabounded empire. The authority the Son has been given by the Father is far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, whether it's spiritual or earthly in nature. Not only is every power inferior to Christ, they are all subject to him. And so it doesn't make any difference whether the authority is visible or invisible, Christ is above it. Neither the authority or power of Rome or any other earthly power nor the power of hostile spiritual forces can stop what God is doing in Christ. And given the background of the occult and sorcery and and the black magic at, at Ephesus, it was vital for these precious believers to understand that Christ has all authority in spite of the power that they may perceive to be present in, in, in the practices of black magic or in the worship of Diana or the other gods. And certainly the power of darkness behind these things is real because Satan is behind it all. However, the the encouragement is that Christ has all rule and authority, power and dominion in the present age and in the age to come. And that means exactly what it says. He has all power and authority. And so at a practical level, it's important for all believers to remember that Christ has supreme authority over all things, even now. We don't have to wait for his return and and the coming of the millennial kingdom to know and enjoy his full authority as the risen, exalted Lord. It's important for us to understand the authority that now belongs to Christ because it means, number one, that he is able to do far more abundantly than all that we could ask or think, Ephesians 3.20, and that it's possible for us to make the best use of the time even though the days are evil, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 16. The Lord Jesus Christ is able to do what he desires for us who believe. 
He's able to deal with all rule and authority in the heavenly places, which is a great comfort because, as Paul says in Ephesians 6.10, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. But these spiritual forces of darkness have been made subject to Christ. And so when we're told that Jesus has been exalted over them, we don't need to fear attacks from them any more than from our flesh or from the world system. And certainly we can't resist Satan in our own strength, but as James tells us, if we will submit ourselves to God and resist the devil, he will what? Flee from us. And so even though we may struggle with these forces now, and the fight is serious, as we'll see in chapter 6, the good news is that Christ has already won the victory. And that's good news. And the implication of this is absolutely life-changing. Because it, it means that those of us who belong to Christ enjoy ultimate safety and security. It means that no weapon that is fashioned against us shall succeed. And the thought here parallels the triumph of, of Romans 8, 28 to 39, where Paul declares that nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So in Christ, we have security from the powers that assault us. We have victory over the darkness that, that once engulfed us. And we have a glorious inheritance that is waiting for us. And this is the confidence the gospel gave to the Ephesians, and now gives to us. Christ's exaltation and his supremacy over all things should be encouraging to all of us who belong to him, because it means we're not alone. It means that our fight is just one battle, because the war was won on the cross, the victory is Christ. Of that, we can, we can be absolutely sure. And this should be a great encouragement for us to live for Christ and to follow him. Because what he calls us to do, he enables and empowers us to do. So Paul's point then is that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead and exalted him to the throne at the Father's side in heaven and gave him supremacy over all the universe is the same power now at work in us as God's people. Finally, Paul tells us that the immeasurable greatness of God's power was demonstrated by Christ's headship. Look at verses 22 and 23. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So first, Paul first speaks of Jesus as head over all things. And all things are mentioned twice in verse 22. And in the context, uh, it includes not only the material universe, but, but and also and especially all intelligent beings, good and evil, angelic and demonic, who inhabit it. So the universe and all of these beings are under Christ's power, dominion, and authority. And since all things have been put under his feet by God, Jesus is thereby head over all things. But Paul goes further than this. His point is not just that God made Jesus head over all things, but that he gave him as head over all things to the church. The one God gave to the church 
to be its head was already head of the universe, so both the universe and the church have in Jesus Christ the same head. And this is the first time in Ephesians that the word church has occurred. But the fact is, from the beginning, Paul has had the church in mind. And the Greek word translated church means the called out ones, the assembly. It often refers to the local church, but here it refers to the universal church comprised of all true believers from the day of Pentecost to the time of Christ's return to take his people into his presence. So no denomination or uh, no local church can claim to be the church because the church is composed of all true believers. Paul says, God gave him as head over all things to the church. Then he says, which is his body. The church is Christ's body. And Paul is the only biblical writer to use the term body as a metaphor for the church. When a person trusts Christ, he's, he is immediately baptized by the Holy Spirit into this body. And that's what the baptism of the Spirit is. The baptism of the Spirit is not a post-conversion experience. This occurs at the moment a person trusts in Christ alone for salvation. They are immersed or placed into the body of Christ. And so every true believer is a member of this spiritual body. And Jesus Christ is the authoritative head of the body because all things have been placed under his feet and God gave him as head over all things, including the church. So Jesus is the head of the church. He is the head of the universal church in general and he is the head of every local church in particular. In a parallel passage in Colossians 1.18, Paul writes, and he, speaking of Christ, is the head of the body, the church. So Paul is saying that, that Christ and, and no other is the head of the body, the church. But, but what does it mean that, that Christ is the head of the body? What does that mean? Well, in Greek usage, the, the word head meant source and origin, as well as leader and ruler. It refers to one who is of supreme rank or preeminent status and possesses ruling authority. Christ as head means he's the source of the church. It speaks of his ownership of the church and his authority over the church. And so just as a body cannot live without a head, so the church cannot live, cannot be a true church if it is separated from Christ who is its head. Just as a body is controlled from the brain, so Christ controls every part of the church and gives it life and direction. He energizes the body. As one man wrote, Jesus is the inspiring, ruling, guiding, combining, sustaining power of the church, the mainspring of its activity, the center of its unity, and the seat of its life. The concept of Christ as the head of the church is is not used in the sense of the head of a company because the church is not an organization. Rather, the church is a living organism inseparably tied to the living Christ, living in utter dependence upon him. I mean, there's only one head, and that is Christ. And he controls, directs, and guides the true church, and it's through his church that he carries out his purpose for his people and the world. And the church is an inseparable part of our lives, or at least it's supposed to be. 
And Christ is sovereign over the church just as he's sovereign over creation. God gave him his head over all things to the church. Verse 23, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Here Paul speaks of the church as the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now what does he mean by that? What does he mean by that? First, he could mean that the church completes Christ in the sense that the church is Christ's body and what is a head without a body. You know, a body gives completion to the head and vice versa. And that's the way uh, some commentators take it. However, the problem with, with that view is that the New Testament nowhere states that the church completes Christ or that Christ finds fullness from the church. So that doesn't work. So what does it mean? Well, we have to use what's called the analogy of Scripture, don't we? In other words, we have to let Scripture interpret Scripture. And so because the context, immediate and wider, ultimately determines our translation. It seems more likely that what Paul means here is that Christ fills the church, which the Bible does say. For example, Colossians 2.10, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Colossians 1.19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So in Christ is all the fullness of God, and since believers are in him, we are filled with his fullness. We've been filled in him. The same thought is expressed elsewhere. John said in John 1.16, and from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Paul prayed that the Ephesians in, in Ephesians 3.19 would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. In Ephesians 4, he, he says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We do not fill Christ or complete Christ. No, he fills us. But, but what does that mean? Well, first let me say what it does not mean. It does not mean that we too are filled with the same fullness of Christ, the, the fullness of the Godhead. The only one that was ever true of or ever will be true of is the Lord Jesus Christ. We are not, not filled with the fullness of deity. In other words, we don't become little gods. The word fills used here means to make full, to make full with a sufficient quantity. And the same verb is used to describe Christians as being filled with the fruit of righteousness in Philippians 1, joy and peace in Romans 15, as well as goodness and knowledge, again Romans 15, not to mention uh, the Spirit himself in Ephesians 5. Paul's point here is that Christ is not merely the church's head, he is its fullness, he is its life. His is the life that flows through and gives life to the church. 
Just as Christ fills all in all, so in a unique way he, he fills his church as its Lord and life. Paul is saying that there is fullness in only one, in Christ Jesus. And in him, and, and therefore in no one else, we'll find every resource, every truth, all power. In other words, all the heavenly resources needed for spiritual growth and maturity. Everything pertaining to life and godliness. As Lord over all things, he fills all things. Christ fills the whole universe with his governing presence, but as head over the church, he, he is, his filling of the church is different. Only the church is his body. And he rules it and fills it in a special way with his spirit, his grace, and with spiritual gifts. In other words, with his fullness. Why? To empower the church to carry out his mission in the world. As one man said, the church is to be a transforming power indeed. Through the presence of the risen Christ within the greatest of all powers in this world, those who belong to the church are changed. Apart from the power of Christ in their lives, they do not even belong to it. Then, having been changed and having become members of the church, they are to work through the power of Christ in the church to transform the world powerfully. The victory is not achieved by arms, it is not achieved by marches or by the force of power politics. It is the victory of transformed lives as through the church which Christ fills, the rule of Christ is extended forcefully throughout the world by pure and humble means, but powerfully as the strength of Christ appears in those who are his followers. And this means that, that we as a church are entirely dependent upon Christ. I mean, what makes us something significant, indeed glorious, is our relationship to Jesus. He fills us and he fills the church with his presence. And what an encouragement this must have been to the churches in and, and around Ephesus. And what an encouragement this should be to us. I and mean, Christ is the head. He is ruling, steering, providing for, filling, and empowering, and using his churches in the world. And since Paul wrote this letter to the Ephesians, I mean, kings and, and kingdoms uh, had come and gone. Governments and, and philosophies have risen and fallen. Dictators and, and oppressors have ruled and, and faded away. But through it all, the church of Jesus Christ, carrying the message of his eternal love and final rule, has endured and will endure, because the gates of hell have not prevailed against it, and they will not. Christ shall have dominion. And he will use his church to bring his rule to the hearts of his people throughout the world. That's why he has left us here. To be a part of his body, the church, and to be used by him to advance his kingdom through the preaching and the sharing of the gospel. We're not here to live for ourselves. We've been bought for a price. We're no, long, we're no longer our own, but we belong to him, lock, stock, and barrel. And so we're no longer to live for ourselves, but for him who died for us. We're to, we're to seek to advance his cause in the world. And 
And that, that, that message is somehow, somehow seems to have gotten lost in the church today. Because it seems that for so many, the church has become, or, or they want it to be, not much more than a social club. A place where they can go and hang out with their friends, perhaps do a little networking for their business, feel good that they brought their kids to children's ministry, and you know they, they did the church thing on Sunday, so they're good for the week. We've forgotten that the church is Christ's glorious body. And that Sunday... It's called the Lord's Day for a reason. Because it's the day on which uh, His Word and His will declares that we are uh, to stop everything and to gather to worship Him and to serve Him. To be encouraged and strengthened and built up and equipped so that when we leave this place, we can go back out, out into the world wherever it is that God has placed us. And be light and salt. Again, seek to advance his kingdom. It's not about us. It's about him. It's about him. He wants to use his church to bring his rule to the hearts of his people throughout the world. And so however small and, and vulnerable this church may look today, every genuine church gathered through the gospel under the rule of Christ by his word enjoys the fullness of him who fills all in all. And this brings us to the end of Paul's prayer and to the end of chapter 1. You know, in his prayer, Paul prayed that the Ephesians might first and foremost uh, have a deeper and ever-increasing knowledge of God himself through Christ. Secondly, he prayed that the Ephesian saints would have the, the eyes of their hearts enlightened or illuminated. They might know the hope to which he has called us, the riches of the glorious inheritance that, that was theirs in Christ and the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Paul wants us to know the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe. And you see, loved ones, the practical importance of God's opening our eyes to see the magnitude of his mighty power that saved us and exalted Christ over all. is so that we would properly represent him on earth. Because people do not see the risen and exalted Christ. But they do see us. They see his body, the church. And so in looking at us, in looking at the church, what do they see? Do we represent our risen, exalted head in, in a proper way? 
When they look at us, when they look at the church, do they see His grace, God's grace, His love, and His holiness through our lives? Paul prayed that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened so that among those other two things we would know the immeasurable greatness of His power. And as it reflected on God's power, then he, did, he began to describe how immeasurably great this power was. It was demonstrated by Christ's resurrection, His exaltation, His supremacy, and His headship over the church. Paul wanted the Ephesian believers in us to know that Christ's power and authority over all things is for us. So that we might live for Him. And because He has triumphed, we too will ultimately triumph. We're going to lose a, a battle or two along the way to be sure. But as I said earlier, the war has already been won. The victory is Christ. And so there's no need for us to be disheartened as we face really a a pagan world. And we really do live in a pagan world. A pagan culture. A culture full of idolatry. A culture full of rampant immorality. A culture full of hatred and animosity and opposition and and even persecution, and that's just going to increase. But even if it does, and I'm sure it will, that doesn't change the fact that Christ is our exalted King. And He is ruling and reigning from His throne in heaven. And he is supreme over all of the universe. And one day, our king is going to return for us. And at that time, he is going to make all things right. And then he's going to take us to be with him forever and ever. But until that day, we can know and experience the fullness of him who fills all. behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Chapel Reading Palisadro, we hope and pray this study you just heard will help you grow in the Word. If you have any remaining questions or comments, please call us at 530-547-4400. That's 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. 
you can also email us through the website at ccredding.com. Thank you for listening, and may God richly bless you. Grow.